Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. We return this morning to our study of Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. If you turn there in your Bibles, we'll begin by reading that. Romans 8, 28 to 30. We've been studying the book of Romans together, and we've spent, this is our fifth sermon on these few verses. We'll talk about why that is in just a moment, but we'll begin by reading. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. So this is our fifth and very likely our final sermon on these three verses of Scripture, important verses of Scripture. It's hard to express the importance of these verses in the history of theology, particularly of Reformed theology and the recovery of biblical doctrine at the time of the Reformation. These verses are ground zero for the development of the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace are just a way of telling us all that the links that God has gone to, to secure our salvation, and they provide the scope of his work in our lives, in in his purposes to save us. And it gives us the panoramic view of it all, all the way from eternity past to eternity future. It lays it all out so that we can see the whole, we can see that God is the one at each point in this process that he takes a believer through, of, of he provides it, he gives it. That's why they're called the doctrines of grace. It's his work in our lives. And we, in this pa- passage like this, we can step back and we can see the whole of it, like climbing on top of a mountain and looking down on it. A very important passage to look into. And each, it's been called by theologians for many years, a golden chain an unbreakable chain of salvation. Each one of the links of the chain is represented by these these terms, predestined or foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. Each of those links is very critical and important, significant um, for us to know, understand, meditate on, that each, each part is critical for our salvation. So that's why we've taken a number of weeks to look at it. And this morning we come to the final link in the chain, which is glorification. Those whom he has justified, he also glorified. What are the other links of the chain that between the two poles? That's the the, uh, future eternity link. The eternity past is the link of his foreknowledge and his predestination, his election, prior to the beginning of time, choosing certain individuals that he would set his love on and save. What are the links in between, the links that touch our practical lives and uh, 
happened in history, come about and worked out in history. Those links are, first, calling. Those whom he predestined, he also called. This is talking about the effectual call. There's a general call that goes out in the preaching of the gospel to all creation as Jesus commanded. It's an indiscriminate casting of seed. Jesus talks about this in the parable of the sower. The sower went out to sow and he spread seed around. And that's how the church approaches the preaching of the gospel. We don't know who God has called and chosen and elected. We don't have that kind of knowledge. That's his secret purpose and counsels. He hasn't revealed to us who. So he's just commanded for us to spread the seed around. We proclaim Christ to all creation and trust that God will work out in his sovereignty his good purposes in it. And he has a purpose always. When his word goes out, it always accomplishes what he sets it out to, to what he sends it out for. It doesn't return to him void. For some, it comes with the help of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. When it comes with the power of the Holy Spirit, it, it's, it's the call that goes out and meets with good soil, a heart prepared by the Holy Spirit for the good news of Christ. And that's called an effectual call. And that's what he's talking about here. Those whom he predestined, he called. When it goes out without the power of the Holy Spirit for salvation, it goes out to greater condemnation of the people who hear. We don't know the result. We don't know what God intends, but he always intends something, either for good or for the destruction of the hearers. What Paul is pointing out here, though, is for our comfort. If you, call, if you were called and you heard the message and you responded in faith, that's because God has predestined you for that. He has effectually called you, and it becomes a link an important link in this chain of salvation. What's the second link? Those who he called, he also justified. At the the moment that you trust in Christ, you hear the gospel call and you respond in faith, the very moment that you respond in faith, God justifies you. What is justification? It's a legal declaration by God that your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven, wiped clean. Not only that, but that in place of that bad rap sheet of yours, full of all kinds of wicked deeds and disobedience, that's thrown away, crumpled up, torn up, burned, whatever, disposed of, gotten rid of, and in place of that is Christ's own obedience which becomes yours legally before God in, as the judge of the world. He decrees this for you. The moment you believe the gospel and trust in Christ, you get forgiven and you get all of Christ's obedience attributed, imputed to your account. It's beautifully portrayed for us in the Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan. When Pilgrim, with this huge burden of guilt and sin on his back, gazes upon the cross and that burden falls off of his shoulders. As a Christian, he continues to sin. If you know the story, there are, there are, he sins down the road, along the way. He sins more. But never again does he have this burden on his shoulders. That's because in the cross, through justification, God, he 
removes from us that curse of, of sin and guilt. No more of it. It's done. That's justification. So those he called, he also justified. But justification is not an end unto itself. That's not, it's wonderful. Get a hold of it. I hope that that's your faith. I hope that that is your gift from the Lord today. If not, he offers it to you in the gospel this very day. But it is not an end unto itself. It is a means to an end. That end is the final link in the chain, glorification, which is expressed in the middle of this chain in the words 29. Can you bring us to verse 29, please? Thank you. He, those whom he predestined, to, or those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brethren. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. To be glorified is that statement. It is to be conformed finally and fully to the image of Jesus Christ. We talked about that phrase a couple of weeks ago under the term sanctification. Sanctification is the, is the seed of glorification. Justification Stay with me here. Justification is when God declares you forgiven and imputes to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But that's external from you. That's a declaration, an announcement. God is going to now work that out in your actual life as you grow more and more and as he conforms you more and more into the image of his son. That's called sanctification. He's not satisfied to just leave you in a state of forgiveness judicially. He's going to actually make you holy and conform you into the image of his son Jesus. That's what he's aiming at. And that's happening right now if you're a believer. If you trust in Christ by faith, he has begun that process in you, which we call sanctification. And it's the it's the period of life or the link of the chain that we spend most of life experiencing here in this world in the time of our earthly pilgrimage. We are being sanctified. And that is the beginning, the foretaste of this wonderful and glorious promise that forms the final link of the chain called glory, glorification. Those whom he justified, these he also glorified. Let's talk for just a second about this sanctification season that we're in. Is that a pleasant thing? God, day by day, conforming you into the image of his son. It's not. There are many joys in the Christian life. But there are a lot of really great difficulties and sorrows and pains. It is not easy to be proud and to be humbled. It is not easy to be disobedient and corrected and disciplined and chastened by the Lord into obedience. It is not easy to be an unrighteous son and be taught to be righteous. That is a painful and difficult process which God has ordained trials 
and sufferings in our life to accomplish it. He has, through his cross, purchased the right to turn all of the things of the curse, all of the difficulties and pains attributed with the curse of sin and death, which are, which are expressions of God's wrath against your sin, into good for you. That's what Christ has done and accomplished on the cross for you today, here and now, is he has, he, he now, in, in, in salvation, works all things together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. That means every trial, every difficulty, every pain that you encounter in your life, God is working towards your good, and this is the good, glorification. Your ultimate, total, and full conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the hope that he has put at the end of this chain for us to look at and fix our eyes on and hope in completely so that we won't be discouraged because the Lord knows that sanctification is a season of many discouragements. Trials are not fun. Pain is not easy or delightful. Discipline is not joyful. That's what Scripture says. But afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And the ultimate fruit of righteousness is conformity to Christ. And that is a glory that is not even worthy to be compared with the sufferings that we now undergo. Today's topic is glorification. We want to try to understand it better so that we can fix our hope on it and take real encouragement from it. That's why it's here in this chain, is so that we can delight in it, in understanding it, and receive encouragement from it. I'm just going to tell you that the commentaries on this passage of Scripture go on for many, many, many pages, except when you get to glorification. They talk about glory. They throw that word around a lot. They strike a hopeful, positive note. But there's not much ink spilled on this last link of the chain. They assume that we understand what is meant. And then I, I, as re, I read them, and I thought, there's, there's only three words here to talk about. He also glorified. That's the only words we haven't really dealt with. And then there's not very much commentary to, to meditate on and feast on as in preparation. I realized that I didn't really fully know what these guys assumed that I know about glorification. So what we're facing today is a doctrinal sermon. Not so much an exegetical sermon where there's a long bit of text and we can just walk through it word by word. We're going to take a topic that this, that this passage opens up, identifies, he also glorified, is a topic a scriptural doctrine, which is going to send us to a lot of scriptures, and you're going to have to stay with me. Are you with me? I sense that people are sleepy today. <laughs> First service, too. This is like a fire hose of scripture where it opens up amazing things, things we can't really understand. Scripture even alludes to this, but things we need, that there are things that scripture does teach us about 
the glorified state of the believer, which we need to get a hold of because Scripture tells us to fix our hope completely on it. We need to know what it is we're fixing our hope on so that we can take encouragement to get through our day-to-day lives as believers. Okay, so those whom he justified, he also glorified. God has prepared for his people a glorious future. Paul writes earlier in Romans 8 these words, verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. God has prepared for his people a glorious future. In 2 Timothy, Paul explains his motivation as an apostle, as a preacher of the gospel, in undergoing sufferings and trials and persecutions. This is his motivation. Listen to him. The reason, this, for this reason, he says to Timothy, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it, eternal glory. That's why he undergoes all the trials and tribulations and sufferings of his ministry so that people will come to know the Lord and receive eternal glory. Glory is the ultimate fulfillment of the gospel promise. By sin, we fell short of God's glory. Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In redemption, God intends to restore us to the glory he has intended for his people. What is glory? It's not a word that's easy to to define. What is glory? Glory, if you take all the scriptural references and you sort of look at it from all scripture's angles, is a word that implies these other concepts, okay? Ready? Glory means weighty. Glory means radiant. Glory means majestic and beautiful, praiseworthy and great. God is the very definition of those words. God is glorious. He is the definition of glory. When we get the trumpeters up here, Andy and uh, Gabe, we sing a psalm, Psalm 24, and it says, he is the king of glory. That's who God is. There's glorious things to behold in nature. You've been outside You've been out in the, in the back country. You've been up in the mountains. You've been to the, the ocean. You've been out on the waters. You've been up in an airplane and you've looked down on the great vast expanse. There, you've looked at little flowers that, that come up in the spring. There are amazing glories to behold in nature. God's glory is above those things. Psalm 148, 13, his glory is above earth. And heaven. He is the definition of glory. And he has written testimony to, of his glory into his creation. Psalm 19 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. God is glorious, and all of creation and its glory is pointing to the greater glory of the Lord who made him. 
But how has God especially or most especially glorified himself or communicated his glory to us? In his son, Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15 says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. So he is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. In Hebrews 1.3, it says that Christ is the radiance of the glory, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. God has communicated his great, immense glory in the person of Jesus Christ. If we want to see it most clearly, that's where we look. It's fine to look to nature. Nature points to him, but ultimately we see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And the glory of God is evident in the life and ministry of Jesus at every point. When the night Jesus was betrayed and he knew he was facing the coming ordeal of, of suffering and death on the cross, he said many times over, now you have glorified me. Father, glorify me in this hour. We see the glory of God in amazing ways, even at the the most difficult points of Jesus' earthly ministry, even at the moment where it seems like all is lost from the perspective of his disciples. God's glory in Christ is most evident as they would come to see in the future as the Spirit was given to them. But they did get a little glimpse with their physical eyes on the Mount of Transfiguration of the incredible glory of the of the resurrected, glorified Jesus. Remember, he took several of his disciples up on the mountain. He took Peter and James and John, his brother. He led them on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Credible glory of the Savior that they were had a, just a momentary glimpse of. Now, what this last link of the chain of salvation means, everybody with me? (laughs) What this last link of the chain, he also glorified means, is that we are intended to share in that greatness and that glory ourselves, you and me, if we believe. What those disciples saw of Jesus Christ in his glory for that moment is what you and I, ourselves, will possess. He, we are being conformed into his image. Christ's body and his glory are the pattern that God is conforming us into. And when it comes to our ultimate glorification of our soul and our body, that's the pattern. Christ's own glory, we have been destined to share in. That destiny is being fulfilled, even now, little by little, in the process of our sanctification, through the hardships of our life, through the disciplines God brings to bear in our life, as we grow more and more and are conformed more into his image through training in righteousness, 
we're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ in his glory. But this sanctification is not glory in the full. You could say it's glorification of our spirit and our soul, but you know your body is on a different trajectory. Have you noticed this? 40, it has every mystique that it has, you know, it deserves every bit of the mystique that it has. I have just, I've been discovering. It's like this magic number where things just start happening to you. Where's Denver McDaniel? I don't know if he's here, but I saw him close to my 40th birthday and he said, well, you're approaching your magic, a magic birthday. Time for bifocals. <laughs> I could give you this prescription you know, I could ex- just sort of bump up your prescription, but it's only probably going to last you about six months. I'd just go ahead, I'd recommend that you just go ahead and take the jump. <laughs> that and a whole lot of other things start happening to you when you're 40. Your body is on the decline. If you are a believer and God's spirit has been given to you, even though there's many ups and downs to this process of sanctification, your spirit, your soul, is on a very different trajectory. Paul opens this up to us in an amazing passage, uh, sort of philosophically, when he talks about this sense of our souls are not wanting to, go, to be unclothed. You know the passage I'm talking about? Let's actually just jump there and look at it. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17. This is an incredible passage. No, that's not Thessalonians. What is it? It's 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, so he's talking metaphorically about our bodies. We know that if the earthly tent, which our body is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. So it's poetic, it's, it's, uh, it's philosophical. Here's what I think it means. I think it means... Paul is aware that his body is declining, but his spirit is on the ascendancy to vitality and life, and his spirit, his soul, does not want to be naked. His soul, he knows, will live forever, and his body will not. And so he's assuring himself and all of us that there is a body prepared for us, and this is the groaning that we feel within us as Christians we know something's wrong about our body and our souls being separated from each other. There's something unnatural and embarrassing and naked about it. And we don't want to go about unclothed. We want to be clothed. And he says, God has prepared a house for us. Don't worry. I know what you're feeling, but God has provided for it. He has a plan for this. We'll come back to that in a bit. Glorification. Glorification is 
when we come fully into the conformity that God has decreed for us. When we come into our inheritance as image bearers of God and conformed into the image of Christ, that is glorification. It's the final step in our redemption. It's a work of God whereby we are completely conformed into the image of his Son, sharing body and soul in his likeness and glory, enjoying life together with him and all the saints in his glorious kingdom. We tend to think of that happening at death, but that is not accurate. Something good does happen at death. And here's what scripture says about it. You remember what Jesus said to the man who was being crucified next to him on the cross, who had confessed faith in him. He said, man, this day you will be with me in paradise. Now that man's body did not go to paradise. It went in the ground and it rotted. So some part of that man, his soul, a man is made up of a soul and a body, his soul went to be with the Lord in a place that he describes as paradise. On two occasions, Paul speaks of death as ushering us directly into the presence of Christ. I'll give you one of those occasions. He says this, Philippians 1.23, I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sakes. So he finds this, this struggle within himself. I really want to be done. I really want to go and be with Christ. That is very much better. He tells the thief on the cross, it's paradise. Paul says it's a place that's very much better than this place. But even though at death we're immediately translated into this place where Christ is, that's paradise, even though it's a place of comfort and blessing, a place that in another passage Paul calls home. Home is such a wonderful word. <laughs> Even though it's home, your body does not make the trip with you. And that is not glorification. That's what theologians call the intermediate state sort of technical, unpoetical language, cold sort of language, but that's what they call it, the intermediate state. This time when your soul and your body are separated from each other, your soul is immortal and eternal, and, at, and now sanct fully sanctified, you are done with all of the pains and struggles and sorrows of life. You are in the presence of Christ, and your soul is set free from sin. Your body is not. And so glorification comes only and fully at the moment when Christ returns and the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ rise and the souls that he brings with him and the bodies that are in the ground are joined together. That is the moment of glorification. That's the thing we are told to fix our hope completely on. The resurrection of the body. Uh, 
I want to look at this passage that I just sort of alluded to, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 17. Notice as we read this that the dead in Christ are clearly in two places at once. Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So that's falling asleep in Jesus is a euphemism, speaking about death. And when Christ returns, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So that's one place that the believer is. Here's coming the next place. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who have fallen asleep in the Lord are dead, and there's, the, there's dead in the ground. There's dead with the Lord who he'll bring with him when he comes, and they're, they're also dead in the ground. Their bodies are there. Their souls are with him. When he comes, they are joined together through the power of the resurrection. This is the key moment in glorification, the thing to keep our eye on. What will that be like? It's really interesting that we don't really fully know. Here's... Here's what John says in his letter to, in 1 John, he says in chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it does not, has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know we're children of God. It has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. But that's, you know, that's just uh, alluding to things we know and things we don't know. We, it has not really fully appeared what we will be. We know some things about it, but we don't fully comprehend it or see it. John Frame, in his systematic theology in the chapter on glorification, says, we cannot now imagine how wonderful it will be, how wonderful we will be, and indeed how wonderful even those we consider lowliest will be in their glorified bodies. We don't fully know what we will be. It has not appeared as yet. But Paul prays that we will get a stronger sense of this. In his prayer in the, in the first chapter of Ephesians, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So it's something we don't fully know. It's something that Paul prays that we will come to get a better sense of. We do know this, though, and there, I'm going to try to give us four things after this that we can sort of anchor, anchor points, anchor truths about the resurrected body that we can bank on, <laughs> even though there's lots we don't know. We know this, though, generally. It will not be business as usual. Paul says this very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a moment, 
in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. We shall be changed. How shall we be changed? What will our resurrection bodies be like? Well, the Bible teaches that Christ's resurrection body is the pattern of our resurrection. And this is the first point, the first anchor truth that I think we can nail down that's true about the resurrection. Christ's own body is the pattern of our resurrection. Philippians 3, 20 to 21. Have you got that one? Yeah. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So notice, Christ has a body. Christ has a body. He did not cease to be man after his work and ministry was here on earth was done. When he ascended into heaven, he ascended with his body. He's the first fruits of them who sleep. He was resurrected. We have not yet been. We await his return. But when he returns, it says that our humble state will be transformed or conformed into the image of his, the body of his glory. His body and his glo- the glory of his body is the pattern for our transformation. When we're changed, we will be changed into that. Amazing. Christ's body is the pattern for our body being changed. Number two, our resurrection bodies will be physical. There's some confusion that many of us suffer under over about this point because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 44. He says, it's sown, talking about the body being buried, it's sown into the ground a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body, Paul says. But what does he mean? He doesn't mean that suddenly you become a spirit being. Fully, fully, that's, that's what God is aiming at with you. He wants you to be less physical and more spiritual. No, that's not what he's aiming at and it's not what Paul means. Virtually all commentators agree on this point that spiritual here does not mean made out of spirit, but rather filled with the spirit. Because of your sinful flesh and because within you is alive and well and kicking and screaming that old nature and that old man and it will be with you as long as you live. You cannot be, you're not capable of being filled with the Spirit fully, like you will be capable of when you're resurrected. Your body will be able to be full, it will be fully conformed to the will of God, full of God's Spirit. And Paul doesn't have any better way of expressing that than spiritual body. You have a spiritual spirit, you will now have a spiritual body to go with it. That is, one can fully conform to the image of Christ. Our, bo- our resurrection bodies will be physical. 
Paul says in Romans 8.23, just earlier in our passage, that we are eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. At the resurrection, our bodies will be there, and there will be physical bodies, real bodies. Number three, we will have the same bodies. but they will be changed. We are not looking for a completely other and new vessel. That is not the hope. Jesus, when he was raised, did he get a completely different body? No. Jesus' body still had the marks and the the cut in the side. It was Jesus. You will be you. God gave you your body. It is you. And you will keep it. You will be you in the resurrection, but you will be changed. What that will be like, I don't know. (laughs) But we will recognize one another. You will be you'll be happy with what whatever it is. Trust me. I understand. There's lots of reasons, increasing reasons as you age, not to be happy with you. But you will be you in the resurrection. I actually think, if we just think about it for a minute, that's a really exciting and hopeful thing. You don't want to not be you. Your body is you. And even though it's decaying, it will be remade. And it will be perfect, as God intended, without the sin, without the curse of sin and death resident in it. When our, this is number four, when our bodies are raised, they will be immortal. When our bodies are raised, they will be immortal. In 1 Corinthians 15, a wonderful chapter to know about the resurrection. At the end of it, Paul says, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? There will not be death. It will be triumphed over by the Lord Jesus Christ at the shout and with the trumpet. You will be immortal. You will never die. Your immortal soul will now again, through the amazing power of Jesus Christ, have a proper body that will never die. Where will all this be? Where will our resurrected bodies live? Where will we live in the resurrection? So popular mythology of this, commercialism tells us what? Sort of dwell in puffy little white clouds with harps of gold? That's not hopeful to me. If I'm going to fix my hope on something, it's going to be kind of like what I know and experience, but better, without sin and without curse, a place, a land where righteousness dwells, a land where you can do stuff, where you can touch things, where you can taste things and hear them and enjoy them, where there's, a, where there's something other than lounging around to do. 
That's something to get excited about. And that is what God has prepared for us in the resurrection. Not just a new body, but also a new earth where righteousness dwells. He says this in 2 Peter 3.13. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So eternal life is not going to be spent in the clouds. We're looking for a new earth. The present heavens and earth will be burnt up with intense heat, just as it says in 2 Peter 3.10. And in another passage of Hebrews, it says that the elements will be shaken and only what is solid will remain. So our bodies at the resurrection will be our own but changed and like that I believe it will be with, I, like, I think it will be like that with the new earth. It's not an altogether different planet that we are expecting or looking for but a renewed one. And on this new earth, this earth, this earth, renewed, we will reign and rule with Christ, enjoy unbroken fellowship with him and with one another forever. Psalm 1611 says that where Christ is and Christ will dwell on the earth, I know that my Redeemer liveth and he will dwell on the earth, Job said. Where Christ is in that land, here among us on the earth, is fullness of joy and pleasures forever. What happens to the body of unbelievers? We'll close with this. What happens to the body of unbelievers? Pretty much the same thing, but without the same end. There is a resurrection of the unrighteous. It's not that their soul gets sent to a place of torment. Their bodies too are raised and joined to their souls. And their bodies and souls together are sent into hell. Remember what Jesus says? Don't fear the one who can kill the body but not the soul. In other words, don't fear man. Fear the one who can cast both body and soul into hell. Yes, I say fear him. And that is what is expected uh, and coming for the unrighteous. There will be a resurrection that they experience and their soul will, and their body will be joined together and their body will be immortal. The better to undergo internal suffering. It says in... John, Jesus says in John, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. What do we do with this doctrine? What do we do with it? What does it mean for us? It's at the end of this golden chain. It's the terminus. It's the aim. It's the goal. It's the promise at the end that we are to hope in. Paul says, fix your hope completely on the glory that is to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At his coming, we are to have our hope completely fixed on this moment. That's why I've tried today to help us understand what this moment is, what it means for us. What is your hope fixed on? 
I was thinking about how difficult it is for young people to hope in this. The world is still your oyster. Those of us, though, who are young or older are looking back on a lot of the oyster. Not a lot of oyster left. (laughs) Even you young people are to fix your hope completely not on this life or all the promises that you're excited about, all the possibilities. They're there. It's your obligation to grow up into a maturity and adulthood and fulfill some good purpose in this world. That's fine. Do it for the Lord. But even still, in the midst of that pursuit of your life and your calling and your hopes and your dreams, you're to have your eyes fixed on the glory to be revealed to you in Jesus Christ. As you age, if you're a Christian, God will help you as your body declines and as, there's, as regrets pile up behind you. But my exhortation to you, young people, is to start now fixing your gaze on the hope of glory. You want to hear the Lord say, well done to you on that day. You keep your eye on that prize. You want to receive from him the crown of life. There are many troubles and challenges and obstacles to overcome in the future of your life. Keep your eye on the prize. The hope of glory is like, I was trying to come up with an analogy. When God, as we talked a couple of weeks ago about trials being like a wilderness and you can get lost in them and wander around in the darkness. The hope of glory is like the light that suddenly emerges on the horizon from which you can get your bearings and from which you can say to yourself, okay, now I know where I am and I know how to get home from here. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would enlarge our minds and our hearts to be able to comprehend the great things that you have in store for us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to fix our gaze and put our hope completely on the glories that are to be revealed when Christ comes. I pray we would live for that day and not for today or tomorrow, that we would be pilgrims and that every action, thought, word of our lives would confess this, that we are just passing through and that we are headed towards a kingdom which can't be shaken. Help the young people here especially, Lord, to learn this and to live soberly as they face the decisions before them. Help those who are older to not lose heart in the midst of their accumulated trials and difficulties and pains and as sorrows seem to increase with age, Lord, help us to look at these promises and these truths and find them sweet and precious and comforting. Help us not to lose our way, but fulfill your good promise that those who you justify, you also glorify. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.